Well, let's open the word of the Lord once again to where we left off last time, and that is James 1. If you'll find James 1 verse 9, and as you're finding that text, let me again say how much I appreciate the ministry of Jeff and Jim and the gifts the Lord has given them in preaching and how they blessed your hearts. And it was a blessing to be away and to know that you were hearing the word of the Lord from two great brothers in Christ and men whom the Lord has endowed with uh, the gift of preaching, and uh, I was very relaxed uh, knowing that you were in good hands with my dear brothers. What a joy it is to have them and their families in this beloved congregation. But we were looking last time we were together at James 1, and we want to, to see how James, the brother of our Lord, is using two illustrations of the various kinds of trials that will come our way. And these various kinds of trials that in fact do come and will come require wisdom. And the good news is God loves to give wisdom to his people. And he loves not only to give it, but he loves to give it generously to anyone who would ask for it. And you might recall that James first talked about the lowly brother. That sometimes we find ourselves like the lowly brother. We are afflicted, we are in a time of difficulty, we are facing adversity, and his word is that those who are lowly must rejoice. They must count it all joy, and they must boast in their exaltation, that when we are knocked down low by trials and tribulations, we are really exalted by God. We are being lifted up, and if we'll just look and see the heavenly blessings that are ours and those blessings that are even ours now in Christ, we can endure and we can manifest the kind of maturity that the Lord wants for his people. As James says, we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But it takes wisdom to rejoice when you're knocked down low by trials and tribulations. And that's why this word wisdom is so critical to this beloved letter of James. But having addressed the lowly Christians, now James will turn the tables and give a second illustration of the kinds of trials that come. There are those that come and knock us down, and then there are those trials, those trials that are very pleasant, those situations that are very pleasant. Let's read it together, James 1. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, that's what we covered before. But let the rich boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the grass its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And now may our Father bless the preaching and the hearing of his holy word. Well, having spoken of the lowly brother, now James talks about the other side of the fence, the Brother he calls rich here, the rich among God's people. Who are these rich people that James is talking about? It's pretty easy to imagine the lowly ones because remember, this is a church on the run. James is writing to a church that's dispersed. They've been driven out of their homeland by persecution. They're on the run. 
And we can understand that they would be without many things they needed and would be discouraged and facing adversity, the lowly brother. But now, now James turns to talk about the rich. And so who are these rich people? Well, James has in mind those among God's scattered people in the first century who were nevertheless well off in terms of material possessions. I mean, despite the condition of being on the run, many of them running from persecution, these dispersed Christians were blessed, even in their dispersion, blessed with great abundance. They had an abundance of the world's goods. And so they had not suffered like the lowly brothers. They, they, had, they had their stuff with them. Their lives were largely intact. They had not suffered material and economic loss, maybe not suffering in the least. All was well for them. They had plenty compared with a lowly brother. So these are the Christians on the other side of the experiential spectrum. They're not suffering. They are enduring pleasant seasons. It is going well for them. They're in a season of prosperity, the polar opposite of the lowly brother. Now, immediately, we're confronted with perhaps something we've not considered before. And that is this notion that there could be many potential trials connected to prosperity. But have you ever thought about that? When we think about trials and testing, we think about this lowly brother who's lost many things, who's suffering the unknown who is without the necessities of life. And we can easily see how that, that's a time of testing. That's a time to challenge uh, and to have your faith pruned, as it were. But can, can you imagine how a season of blessing might be a test? And that's what James has in mind. They are being tested with prosperity, the rich man. They have plenty and yet James and the balance of Scripture would say that there are great dangers, there are exacting tests that come with blessings of abundance. And by now you've realized the fact that compared with the rest of the world, we're all rich. Every one of us here is rich. Now don't get me wrong, we can all identify with a lowly brother. Right? We can all identify. We've all been there. We've all suffered adversity. We've been beaten down. And we've had the things we stand on stripped out from under us. And we've been dangling there in midair, so it seemed, with only the Lord Jesus to hold on to. But by the world's standards, there's not someone, anyone in this building here this morning who is not abundantly rich compared to the rest of humanity. So here is a word for us, if there ever was a word for us. Here is a strong, pointed word from James. We are all rich. And you're going to see he has some strong medicine to give us this morning. Very strong. But medicine that heals. Let's first start thinking about some of the tests, or to put it in the negative perspective, some of the dangers associated with blessings of abundance. 
Let's think of some of the ones maybe you haven't thought of, but you'll immediately recognize them. There are dangers, there are tests that come to us when all is going well. Let me name a few of them, and you see if they make a connection. The first might be, the first test might be that of pride. Pride. That seems to be an obvious danger associated with material blessings or blessings of any kind. And what makes this such a a dangerous environment is that there are many lies associated with pride. Think about a couple of lies that track with pride, particularly as we are blessed with abundance. You might begin to think if you're experiencing a season of great abundance when all is going well, you might begin to think that you brought that on by yourself. And that's a lie. You might begin to think, you know, I made this situation. This is the fruit of my labor. I deserve the credit. Look at the, 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 the plenty I've provided. Look at the, the, the peace I've brought about. Look at the way I've ordered my life. And so everything is working out just fine. And that is a lie associated with pride. Because you know better than that. There's another lie. A lie that pride would whisper in our ears. And that is that because we are so blessed... And because we've brought this about by ourselves, then we're better than those who are not doing so well. There's a tremendous illustration of both of those lies associated with pride in the Old Testament. Maybe it's the greatest example of the danger of pride. It's in the book of Daniel. And there's that Babylonian king, King King Nebuchadnezzar. He rules a vast kingdom. Indeed, it's the most powerful kingdom of all at that time in history. Babylon had captured God's people, taken them captive to their homeland and were trying to assimilate them and turn them into Babylonians. And King Nebuchadnezzar was the king in charge. One day, the word of God says the king was out looking over his kingdom And he said these words, listen to these words, quote, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? Have I not done this for my glory and my majesty? And you can envision that, can't you? This great king who's just conquered the world. And he stands out looking at his kingdom. He has peace. He has prosperity. He has everything he wants. He is blessed. And he says, look at what I did. And you know the next thing that happens? And you can read it for yourself in Daniel 4. As the words are rolling off his mouth, these lies, look what I did, and I'm the greatest king of all. Before those words finish leaving his mouth, a voice from heaven sounds. And that voice says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And do you know what happens next? That great king became a lunatic, literally. I don't have a nicer word to use in my very limited vocabulary. He became a lunatic. He went nuts. Judgment fell, and the Lord showed him 
who the real king was. Later on, he, he comes to his senses by the grace of God, and he confesses that there is no God but Yahweh. But it was a long, long, arduous, terrible, terrible time of testing that brought him to that confession. Could it be that the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar lives on in some of us? Look at my kingdom. Look at what I've done. Pride. There's another test that comes with having a lot, and that is anxiety. Anxiety. There's a twisted irony with that, isn't there? The one with the most in terms of material possessions and resources is often the one most beset with worry and anxiety. How strange that is. The more we have, the more we worry over. The more there is to protect, the more there is to maintain, the more there is to manage. And that produces a situation in which the seeds, or you might say the weeds of anxiety, begin to grow and flourish. And Jesus spoke about this. You might recall in Luke 12 his very interesting parable of the wealthy man and his barns. It goes something like this. Jesus tells a parable, and he says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. I mean, he was blessed. And so he thinks to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And so sitting there in his living room, overlooking his kingdom, he says, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there, in these larger barns, I will store my grain and my goods. And then then I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, Self, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Now think about that word, relax, he wants. He wants to relax, eat, drink, and, and be merry. But you can see, if your eyes are open this morning, you know, if you can see, there's something paradoxical in that parable. His fields have been blessed. He does have plenty. But instead of thanking the Lord and being contented with what God has given him, he begins to make plans, which takes energy. He begins to make plans to tear down. He's got to go out there and tear something down. He has to design something to replace it, something bigger and better. And all of that bringing out great anxiety and worry in his heart. And what is it that moves him to do that? It is the fact that he is seeking security for his crops and for himself. He is lustfully desiring to secure his own future without any reference to God. And he will be an anxious man. What he wants at the end of the day is to relax, but he will never relax like that. He insanely sets off at a frenetic pace to tear down and to build in order to simply say, I can relax now. There's such tragedy there. There will be no peace because he's forgotten the Lord. He has been morally blinded by his lust for more. And there's this fog now of anxiety hanging over him. Such a grave danger. Along with pride and anxiety, there's the the danger of self-reliance. 
would you be willing to confess with me that the more we accumulate, the more our hearts begin to move? Have you ever experienced that? The focus and the object of our trust slowly shifts from Christ to these things. Now, you're going to hear me say, and you're going to hear the Scripture say a bit later, that there's nothing wrong with being blessed. In fact, many, many, many of God's people, like us, have been richly blessed. But there's a strange thing that could happen to us if we're not careful. The very blessings the Lord graciously gives us can, if we're not extremely careful, trick us into a reliance upon them rather than God. It can foster a spirit of independence in us. No longer do we understand that we are simply the slaves and servants of the Lord Jesus. We believe we're the masters and the kings. So watch out. There's a powerful word of warning about this in the book of Proverbs, that great book of wisdom which James certainly knew well. Proverbs 11.28 Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. So watch out. That's the point James is making. There's the grave danger when we're blessed, when all is well, to have no need for Christ. We might mention a fourth test, a fourth danger, as it were, and that is that of self-deception. Jesus identified this one as well. Uh, You might think of Matthew 13. There's another parable parable of, of the farmer who goes out with the seed in the bucket and he begins to sow the seed on various kinds of soil. I'm assuming you know that pretty well. Jesus then begins to explain that parable to his disciples And he he talked in that parable about the seed sown among the thorns, on the thorny ground. And Jesus comes to explain the, the real meaning of that parable. And he says, now for the seed sown on the thorny ground, that's the person, Jesus says, who hears the word, that is the gospel, the good news of salvation, but, listen to this, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and the word proves Unfaithful. And listen to Jesus use that line, the deceitfulness of riches. Blessings, however they come, and whatever they are, are a two-sided coin. On one side, on one side, when we trust in Christ fully, when we receive the blessings with gratitude and humility, the good side of the coin, then we have greater faith in the one who owns it all and the one who is the provider of it all. It is not a sin to be blessed. It is not a sin if the Lord has made you wealthy. God be praised. But there's another side of the coin. Riches by definition, intrinsically are deceitful. When the Apostle Paul was giving instructions to Timothy about being a pastor, he spoke explicitly about this. Listen to his words. This is Paul talking to Timothy. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, that's a word to the church, not to Wall Street. That's a word to you. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Why? Because riches are inherently deceitful. So when there's an abundance of blessings, we have to be very aware that we might become deceived and be plunged into many, many ruinous days. We might mention one other test, one other challenge, one other danger of blessings. And that's the one that I think is really, really on the heart of the brother of Jesus, James, as he's talking about the rich. And that is division. Division. With an abundance of blessings, with an abundance of material things especially, there is a danger of division. There's always the danger of dividing ourselves among the haves and the have-nots, both in society at large, but especially, and most tragically, in the body of Christ. Now, you don't need me to tell you that the world is divided that way. It's divided along those lines. But more critically, more critically, we measure and distinguish ourselves and our worth by what we possess. And that's the way it works on this side of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> it's dangerous when a pastor comes back from vacation. And he's had two weeks to work on this. And I'm watching the clock. I'm watching the clock. But as I was reflecting on this the last couple of weeks, I thought of an experience I had. And I'll just tell on myself, okay? Uh, and I'll not mention the names of the stores because that, that's not my point. You'll figure it out. But I was in a store in our neighborhood, and I ran into another teaching elder in our presbytery. And he made the comment. He goes, you know, here in our community, at this store, you have a convergence of rivers. Because you look and you see the poor here. You see the blue-collar. You see the uneducated. And moving in with them, you see a few of the well-to-do. And he, he said it's like the, the ocean water hitting the water of the river, and there's this convergence. And he said, Mike, you know, there are some people I know that will not be caught dead in this store because there's too many poor people here. Now, on the other side of the coin... There's another store across the street. And there are some poor people and those who are not well-to-do who would say, I wouldn't be caught dead in that store because it's populated by a bunch of those snotty people from Hampton Cove. Have you ever avoided a store or a seat somewhere? Or turn down an invitation because of the kind of people who would be there. They weren't your kind. And that is played out under our nose every day in this community. 
And that's not the way it should be. And I confess my own struggle with that. And there is that elder was just making that observation, the Spirit of God began to melt my heart. How dare I draw such distinctions? But that's the danger, you see, the haves and the have-nots, and somehow we're better than them. It is a terrible thing that that's recognized in society. It is a grievous, horrific thing that it's recognized in the church. Oh, yeah, out there in the world, there's the upper and the middle and the lower, and that's not necessarily evil. Sometimes that's just the product of, of our freedom. Sometimes that's the result and the consequence of decisions we've made. And, and as far as that goes, that those, that those levels exist is not necessarily evil. But the problem is we judge people. We measure their worth by where were they educated? Are they educated? How much do they own? Where do they live? What do they dress like? And that's the way it is in this fallen world. But that is intolerable in the family of God. And let me show you how big a deal this was to the brother of our Lord James. Look at chapter 2 for a moment. I don't know that in the summer we're going to finish this book. I want to get through chapter 1. Uh, <laughs> But if we make it to chapter 2, we're going to look at this more, uh, more, more carefully. But, but look at this illustration. And, and James is giving you his heart here. This is what he's talking about. Chapter 2, verse 2. If a man wearing gold rings and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man comes in shabby clothing, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say to him, you sit in the good place, while to the poor man you say, you stand over there or you sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions? And there's the sin. Have you not made distinctions in the body of Christ and become judges with evil thoughts? How tragic that is. And so there's the grave danger that we would be divided over our blessings. Oh, really, the, the reality is we're all poor. The reality is we're all spiritual paupers. We are simply the bondservants of Christ. And we have a blessed unity in our one Savior and in the one gospel who has saved us. And we are from different levels of income and different in education and different in race and so on and so on, but we have one king who has loved us with one love, who has saved us with one sacrifice, and we cannot allow money or material blessings or anything like that to divide us. Our unity must be in Christ. So there are some of the dangers associated with being blessed. You can be tested by adversity, and you can be tested by prosperity. Make no mistake about it. Now to the lowly brother, James said, you ought to boast in and rejoice in and glory in your exaltation. But look at what he says to us who are rich. He says, you should start rejoicing right now in your what? Humiliation. 
Now, when is the last time, be honest, that you rejoiced in your humiliation? Well, what is this humiliation in which we're to rejoice? Well, literally, it's our lowest state. It's our lowly condition. While the poor and while the lowly, the ones knocked down by trials and tribulations, are to look ahead to their day of exaltation in Christ, those of us who have plenty, who are experiencing a a blessing or blessings, we are to think about the fact that for all the benefits we enjoy, all the material blessings the Lord has showered upon us, we remain nothing, quote, but hell-deserving sinners entirely dependent upon the mercy of God, not only for the blessing of salvation, but for any other blessing. We're to rejoice in that. And you can see both the lowly and the rich are to to keep things in proper perspective. The rich man, like you and me, must see life in the light of the spiritual realities that are, those true things that are, not just those things that appear to be. The rich Those blessed must apply godly wisdom to see through the facade of our outward condition. If we've learned anything, we've learned that appearances are deceiving. And they are when it comes to having a lot. Again, Paul is helpful here with this with this idea that we need to be rejoicing in our humiliation, he, he, he asked the Corinthian church some very pointed questions in chapter 4 of his first letter. He says, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you'd not received it? Again, to Timothy, he he offers these words that are very applicable here. He says, to the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, that's what James is talking about. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, charge the rich not to be haughty. This is what the Lord's brother is saying. To set their hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God who richly provides all things to enjoy. So when we're blessed... We need to rejoice in our humiliation. That is, to put it in terms that we can wrap our heads around, we need to deliberately practice self-abasement. Why? Because your problem is my problem. When we get blessed, our heads get big. It just happens. And when we're blessed we must give deliberate attention to the cultivation of humility, a self-imposed humility. Maybe we could borrow the word Jesus used, a self-denial. A self-denial. One man has written that in this state of being rich and being blessed, we must apply God's wisdom by engaging in the self-humbling exercise that submits and trusts to God. Though we are blessed, we say, thank you, Lord, you have blessed me, but my, my hope is not those things you've given me. My hope is you, and I have nothing apart from you. Now, that's humiliation in a good way. Those who belong to the world flaunt their prosperity. 
Those who belong to the devil use their blessings as a platform for self-exaltation, self-promotion, and self-advancement. But those who belong to Jesus use their prosperity as an opportunity for humility. Do you see the incredible difference? And that's what James means when he says, when you're blessed, praise the Lord. that everything he's given you will one day be taken. (laughs) Everything he's given you, he will take back. I want to show you how James uh, presses that point in the time we have remaining. I suspect James, and again, this is simply supposition on my part. I can imagine James might have put his pen down for a moment and he was thinking, how can I press this home to my people? As they hear this letter read in those churches, those churches of the dispersion, how can I help them see what I'm talking about? And so he begins to think of an illustration that will help us with this idea that we need to be very careful when we're blessed. And he comes up with an interesting illustration. He turns our hearts and our eyes toward nature. And you see this in verse 10. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. We need to take our clue from nature itself. There's a lesson there for us who are so blessed. He says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat. It withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Those of us who are well-to-do, who are blessed, we need to remember this illustration. We need to look out at the grass and watch it writhe. It's doing that now. Watch the grass struggle. Watch the summer heat bake your front yard. Watch it slowly wither. Watch your front yard slowly burn. It dies a death, fading away, its beauty taken. And that is exactly what's going to happen to everything we own. Everything. That is going to happen to everything we work for. Everything we've been educated for. Everything we've borrowed money for. Everything we worry over. Maybe you're thinking about it right now. (laughs) This building. Your home. Your vacation home. your car, your clothing. All those things the Lord has given us, He is going to take them back. They belong to Him. And they will die. And notice notice how pointed this is in verse 11. This is almost scary to me to read this. But He says, The rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. 
as he's grinding away, as he's killing himself to get ahead, to get more, to get more, to be, to be advanced, then judgment day will come. And in the midst of his pursuits, he has forgotten God, and then he's held to account. The Apostle Peter expands on this notion that all will burn one day. Listen to what he says in his second letter, chapter 3. He says, on that day the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Now, wisdom sees the world that way. That we don't own a thing. Naked we came into this world, and naked we'll go out. There are great dangers associated with being knocked down by trials and tribulations and sickness, adversity, unanswered prayers spiritual battles, oh, but there are massive temptations and times of testing associated with having a lot. What we've learned is that the Lord has ordained our place, our season of lowliness. Maybe that's where you are. You're not there by accident. You're there under the hand of a sovereign God. And if you're there, rejoice in your coming exaltation. But on the other side of the coin, if you're blessed and you have plenty, rejoice. Rejoice that you have nothing but Christ. And that any moment the Lord can take away what he's given. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't own a thing. We are simple stewards of the blessings the Lord has given us. Whether you're lowly or rich, praise and joy are appropriate in all situations of life. Our rejoicing in Christ cannot be seasonal. How many times, like me, I, I know you're like me, how many times have you thought, oh, Lord, if you would just take this away, I would serve you more faithfully. Oh, Lord, if you would just give me this, if you would just answer this one prayer, if you would just take this away, I will serve you. No, we, we can't live that way. And we can't praise him that way. We can't live seasonal Christian lives. Praise and service and obedience and love are always in fashion with the Lord. No, joy is always appropriate. So what do you need? Do you need to rejoice in your coming exaltation? Or rejoice in the humiliation that's coming to planet earth when the king comes? But whatever direction your rejoicing must take, you must rejoice and recognize that Christ is king. And then we've learned that tests will come to all who serve Christ. Now why? 
Because the Lord wants us to be mature. He wants us to be, as James has just said in this opening paragraph, to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He wants Christians who are growing up into mature Christians. And the way he does that is he puts us in his gym. He strains our muscles. He puts us under pressure. He adds a weight, a load that we have to carry. And in the carrying and in the enduring, our faith is made strong. I can put it this way. He loves us too much not to exercise us. So tests will come. And tests demand wisdom. Let us seek God's wisdom. Wherever you are, lowly or rich, let us seek God's wisdom. Let us see life the way it really is. Let us serve the Lord only as bond slaves. Let's ask the Lord to keep us from the terrible deception of prosperity and to be content in whatever place he puts us and to serve him faithfully with hearts that are beaming with joy. This is the great vision of these first 11 verses. God's wisdom for wherever we are whatever our experience is, for the glory of the one who has saved us. Amen and amen. Let's pray.